Hey, welcome to Rushcast. My name's Jay Mantis. Thank you very much for listening to our show. We're really glad that you're here. This is a fun place to be if you're a really big Rush fan. If this is your first time, welcome. And welcome back to just about everybody else who's been here for a long time. Uh, apologies on my end for uh, the week-long delay with this episode. We just started the live album series where we're going to go through every live album chronologically. And two weeks in, I'm still getting uh, kind of settled into my new place that I just moved into. I just started school this week, so those are my excuses. And um, I'm actually I'm in the process of buying equipment to record on my own. And this thing is expensive, man. This is an expensive podcast between the website that hosts the show and I have to pay for the space and all the equipment. So uh, this is my like my monthly plea. Um, if you'd like to donate, some people have donated, you know, 50 bucks, 25 bucks or whatever. And then I'll name something after you. You remember Doug's Rush Toothpaste from the trivia series. Uh, if you'd like to donate, send me an email and... Um, We'll give you a shout-out or something on the show. And it'd be greatly appreciated to pay for some of this equipment. Uh, at the same time, uh, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned how we have a... Um, we're starting a mailing list, right? The Rushcast mailing list. And I'm going to be using that mailing list to send messages out to you guys who are on the list about potentially coming on the show and talking about different topics. I'm going to say, for example, hey, I need somebody to, who's... Somebody who was at the Farewell to Kings tour, somebody who saw that show, I need you to come on the show. That's an example, right? Uh, And a bunch of you emailed already. So if you haven't and you'd like to be on that, please do that. I've got a bunch of people on the list. Uh, All you need to do is send me an email at rushcast at uh, rushcast2112 at gmail.com and just tell me you want to be on the list and you'll be on the list. And as we get closer to the live album series ending here, I'll send out an email um, on that list it'll it's gonna it's gonna be a very useful thing i promise today we're talking about an album a lot of you like exit stage left and to help me is uh, a rushcast listener all the way from ireland whose name is donald uh kavanaugh how you doing donald very good indeed jay i'm glad to have you on even though your voice sounds better than mine Thanks very much indeed for that. <laughs> uh, all right, let's do. I mean, is this uh, the thing I always ask first? Is you know, what's your age generally? Uh, was this an album that you uh, got were, were around for the release? Technically, yes and no is the answer. I am fifty-two. Uh huh. So I'm one of the older contributors, I suspect, um, if not among the oldest. Uh-huh. The, the background to this, the background to this for me is I started getting into Rush. I would have heard the Spirit of Radio. That would have been their biggest single in Ireland. That would have been about 1980. I would have known the song then. It was a good song. I was a rock fan. I was really into this band. They were really good, but you didn't hear very much of them. So I had the Spirit of Radio, and then I bought a compilation album that had two live tracks on it, Overture, The Temple of Searing from 2112, and it had What You're Doing, the two versions from All the World's a Stage. Then I got a copy of Permanent Waves, fell in absolute love with Permanent Waves, and started on this journey where I wanted to 
learn more about this band. I've always come to Rush more from almost a lyrical perspective than a musical perspective. I was always a lover of great rock music, always was interested in lyrics, listening to things like ACDC. It's really great music. It's really fun. It's great to headbang and really rock out to it. But the lyrics like, uh, want to <laughs> tell you a story about a woman I know when it comes to love and ooh, she steals the show. It doesn't really feed your brain. <laughs> I was looking I was looking for a band that would mix really great, powerful rock music with lyrics and, and with words and concepts that were a bit more esoteric and just hit pay dirt with Rush. First album was 2112. Second album was Moving Pictures. My third Rush album would have been uh, Exit Stage Left. And from a live album perspective, it, it's both my favourite album live-wise and my least favourite album live-wise all at the same time. Why is that? because I love the music. It has a pivotal role in me becoming a Rush fan because the moment I went from thinking this is a great band to thinking this will be my favourite band of all time to the day I die came while listening to Exit Stage Left. And a song on Exit Stage Left just cemented me as a Rush fan for life. My least favourite because the structure of the album is the most frustrating live album of all time. I listen to a live album, I want to feel like I'm there. Oh yeah. First of all, the audience sound is so muted. It feels as though the audience is recorded from a toilet in a bar okay. down the road from the venue. And it's so it inconsistent. So low. Sometimes they're roaring in the middle of a song and yeah. other times you don't you don't even think they're there. And, and and the other thing, the other thing is the gaps between the tracks. Yeah. That is crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's I, mean, I remember injustice. listening for the first time. I'm thinking, you know, the whole point of a live album is to create the ambiance, to create the sense of being there. And they put gaps in. I cannot believe Terry Brown let them do that. It really, really amazes me. I mean, if you compare, say, and if you compare Exit Stage Left to Rio, on every level, production, Exit Stage Left, the production is infinitely better. In terms of the sound, Exit Stage Left, uh, inf infinitely better. I mean, it's so much better better produced it, it's so much better sounding it's so much clearer which is the best live album rio is because rio makes you think you are there yeah. when you think of a live experience rio those mad brazilians screaming yyz i mean amazing that to me is a live album exit stage left is a greatest hits album with sort of applause on it yes yes and Rio was the, the live album I was going to go to next, and you stole my thunder, man. That's the exact album I was going to go to to back up your point. And that's because Rio was one of my first uh, introductions, right, as a younger fan. And I remember people making a big deal about the fact that it was track to track, just like the live show. It was just as long. They didn't change the order of any songs. There was they they pretty much kept the space between the songs identical to the live show. It was they started recording at the beginning and stopped recording at the end. Essentially, is how how it felt, and it, people made a big deal about that. So then R thirty comes out, and then Snakes and Arrows live comes out, and all of the albums since have been the same way. And I just assumed that's how live albums are. And as I went backwards, went oh this doesn't feel right. <laughs> You know, uh, I think different stages is from two different tours. I don't even think they're the, from the same tour. Yeah. And uh, let alone the same order or this, you know, that's ridiculous. 
as much as I love that album and as as cool as that is, uh, and then we go back even further to and albums like this one, and it's very clear. I don't even think Spirit of Radio was the first song on the on the tour. In fact, I meant to look that up, and I will. Um, I have the set list in front of me. What is the first from, from the tour, right? From the moving from pictures the tour. tour. I have, in fact, what I have in front of me is the set list from the Forum in Montreal on the 27th of March, 1981. Is that the which beginning? Which is the gig that the bulk of this came from. Okay. All the Canadian stuff, with the exception of the, 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 the stuff from Glasgow on site too, most of the album and all of the DVD came from this gig. So and tell I me. was stunned when I found out what it opened with. Yes, tell, tell us. what. And I, I can't believe I forgot. This is the Moving Pictures Tour, right? This is what the set list was. Go for it. It opened. It opened with 2112 Part 1 Overture and Part 2 The Temple of Searings. Uh-huh. <laughs> followed by Free Will. Yep. Followed by Limelight. So already the track lists all over the place on the album. Oh, yeah, free followed will. by Cygnus X1. Then oh. you've got Cygnus X1 Book 2 Hemispheres Part 1 Prelude. Then Beneath Between Behind Camera Eye YYZ with Drum Solo. Then it's Brunsbane, The Trees, Xanadu, The Spirit of Radio, Red Barchetta, Closer to the Heart, Tom Sawyer, Vital Signs, Natural Science, Working Man. Then you have Cygnus X1, Book 2, Hemispheres, Part 4, Armageddon. And then you have the medley that ends the DVD by tour in the end, In the Mood. And then 2112, Part 7, the finale. And then the encore is La Via. That is the set list from the actual gig. The live album is all over the place. That's insane. That's crazy. Whose idea was that? <laughs> you know, and I... I'm, I it, it, it's, maybe I they... I presume it's Terry... I mean, Terry Brown is the producer on, on the sleeve. Right. <laughs> maybe they said, you know, 2112 was the feature on the last live album. We got to feature something yeah. else. We, we don't have room for it. But, you know, the next track was uh, Free Will, right? Yeah. 2112, Free Will, Limelight, Cygnus X1. The first... I mean, Free Will obviously is on the album. Then Beneath Between Behind is six. I mean... They're, they're the only two on, on in the first six tracks that actually appear on the live album. And the order is completely thrown because it always somewhat annoyed, not annoyed me, but it always got to me. I could not believe that a band would put the drum solo into the third song in the gig. So it was always clear yes. to me <laughs> that what I said clearly was not the third song in the gig because <laughs> you do not put your drum solo in the first 20 minutes. That's got to come toward the end. Yeah. And thing- indeed it does. I mean, it Sorry, the, the red flag for me was always, uh, doesn't Getty say something to the crowd before the first track? Doesn't he say something yeah, like, this, just is- mumbles, this is the spirit of radio? Yeah. Like, and, uh, and it's really low in, in, the, in the background. Now, of course, back then, I wouldn't have known that Getty tends not to speak for the first 15 minutes. Um, but it does, the feel, other element- it does feel awkward, though. They're like, please welcome Rush. This is the spirit of radio. <laughs> you know, that yeah. doesn't happen. No. Now, I, I didn't know that back then. Um, I know a lot more now. But it, it was interesting that at least all the world's a stage, you know, even it, it opens. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome home? Rush! <laughs> that, you know, you get the sense with all the world's a stage. Sure. It's a live album. Yeah. And I, I always had this thing with Exit Stage Left that the gaps in the audience, the structure of it just felt wrong. Um, and, and you want, because here, here's the other thing. And, and this is where, from my perspective, I listen to Rushcast. I hear people speak every week. I am so damn jealous of you guys living over in the US. Yeah, I know. Because, 
Uh, I, I grew up, I got into Russia, as I say, age of about 17. I lived in a, a place called Waterford in the southeast of Ireland. Mm-hmm. The closest rush we're ever going to get to me was in a different country, never mm-hmm. mind in the same country. And this is back in the day before low-cost airlines. The idea of flying over to sea rush somewhere like London or Glasgow when, when you're 17 in the 1980s just wasn't a runner. Yeah. So it, it took me quite a long time to actually see rush live. So even though I was of an age and around for a lot of the albums and a lot of the tours, for half the tours during my formative period, they weren't even coming to Europe, never mind coming to Ireland. Sure. They finally came to Ireland in 2011. Um, and obviously, I was there and I've flown over to the UK. I've seen them a few times in the UK. Uh-huh. But the idea of Rush coming to my city and going to a tour every year since 1980, that was never a runner. <laughs> so again, the live album, when you're in Ireland and you're a rock fan and you don't have access to big gigs, the live album effectively becomes your only chance of experiencing a band live. And I felt cheated by Exit Stage Left because I never got the sense. It never gave me the sense that I was at the gig. And that's why I always say Exit Stage Left is one of the most frustrating albums Mm -hmm. from a live perspective. In terms of the music on it and in terms of production, it is fantastic. It is a brilliant album in terms of the music, but in terms of its structure, in terms of giving you the sense that you're at a live gig, it quite frankly doesn't. Yeah, I, I imagine for anybody outside of uh, the U.S. or in Canada, listening to this show and listening to me whine about how I had to go two hours out of my way because they didn't play in my hometown would be pretty frustrating. <laughs> you know, anybody else would is just happy if they're in their they're on their home turf somewhere in the country. Yeah. So, uh, okay, Here, here's the perspective. I now live in Donegal in the northeast of Ireland or the northwest of Ireland. Mm-hmm. In order for me to get to my first gig, uh, which was um, in 2004 on the R30 tour, when they finally came back to Europe after 10 years, at that point, I had a bit of money. I had a full-time job. I was able to fly. So I said, right, I'm going to fly and see Russia in the UK. So I flew to Birmingham. It happened to be on the 9th of the 11th of um, September mm-hmm. uh, 2004, when I finally got to see them in uh, Birmingham. I had... Uh, two and a half hour drive to the airport from which I flew to the UK to see them. So that's the sort of journey you're talking about. And as I said, back when you're a teen, uh, the the option just isn't there. The other interesting element, of course, is you you would have had rock radio stations. You'd have the option of hearing Rush on the radio way back in those days. We didn't. We uh, basically, in Ireland at the time, there was sort of two national radio stations and a couple of local radio stations that would have played basically standard popular music and AOR the idea of Rush on the radio was just ludicrous to the extent that I remember one day a mate of mine that would be a bit of a fan as well actually rang me in a big panic on Donald Donald switch on the radio quick quick what's wrong he says they're playing limelight mm-hmm. and it's like wow and you know and mm-hmm. it's like Rush on the radio was an event yeah. so the idea of you know switching on the radio to hear Rush just never happened so we always heard our new Rush by waiting for an album to come out going to the record shop buying the album taking it home and the first you heard was when the needle hit the vinyl yeah there's something 
cool about that. There's something to be said for it. Well, there is. Absolutely. And even back in um, a few years back when Snakes came out, and I was very involved in the Rush Forum at that point, and I was very involved online uh, and discussing this album that was coming out, I made an absolute point to avoid any spoilers, avoid any um, leaks that went online. I know a few people sort of inevitably things leaked and people listened. I, I avoided all that like the plague. And literally when Snakes came out in, in my local record shop, they actually got it in two days before the original, the official release. But the guy that owns the shop knows me. So he, he gave it to me and I bought it. I just put it in my car and just drove for two hours listening to this album. And it was just so wonderful because it, it takes you right back to when you started just buying an album, yeah. listening to this music for the first time. And it, it's just such a great way to discover it. Um, I was talking earlier about learning about, and this was, Exit Stage Left was a huge education for me because Rush was this band I was getting into at the time. So I had permanent waves, I had moving pictures. So right, half the album, I knew I knew the music. But the moment that did it for me, what you must remember is when I heard The Trees for the first time, it was on Exit Stage Left. When I heard um, Beneath Between Behind for the first time, it was on Exit Stage Left. But the most important one was when The Trees finished and it went into Xanadu. And that was the moment that cemented me as a lifelong Rush fan. That just utterly blew my mind. <laughs> and even, even if only for the fact that listening to Exit Stage Left was my first exposure to Xanadu, it'll always be special for that. Sure. I, I think a lot of people agree with that. You know, it's funny. I always talk very... With all my heart, I care so much about album orders especially with the studio records and i'm always talking about where songs are placed and i always get the feeling no one else cares as much as i do but so it's great that you come on and the first thing you say on this episode is like let's talk about this jacked up order that's a real travesty yeah um and you so you're very clearly passionate about it so that makes me feel great somebody's with me well it is you see yeah, I mean, I think when, when you're putting music together, um, and, and I have done a bit of work as a DJ in the past uh, on uh, on the, the radio, so I have structured radio shows and produced radio shows, and the whole point is you're trying to get you're trying to get your music to flow and to reach a peak, yeah. and you you do that in such a way as to aim towards something. Now, which is why I really love the whole progression. You go some sort of Brune's Bane into the trees, into Xanadu. That's a lovely progression of music that just takes you, you know, in a, in a, a very definite journey. Now, I can see the point they're making when you, you're putting out a, a live album and you put the Spirit of Radio as the first track on it on the basis that it's been a bit of a hit. Now, I know, I think in the US, Tom Sawyer would probably be regarded as the Rush hit single. Now, certainly for people my age that would go back and remember kind of back in 8081, people here would probably recognize the Spirit of Radio before they would recognize Tom Sawyer. Spirit of Radio got to about number 13, I think, in the UK on the singles charts. Tom Sawyer never got beyond about 27, 28. So I think the Spirit of Radio was always the bigger hit as far as Rush were concerned. Closer to the Heart really didn't register. And sadly, nothing's really registered very much since uh, New World Man, nothing like that from Signals or Beyond. So the Spirit of Radio for many people would be the Rush benchmark. So yeah, putting that as the, the lead off track on the album makes a certain amount of sense. But putting the drum solo third just made no sense yeah, whatsoever. Very inorganic. Um, let, well, let, let's start saying some good things about the album. You know, <laughs> let's. I know. I know. There oh, are, it's a fantastic album. I know there are good things. We just, let's get to them. Um, I think for me, the one of the most interesting parts of this album 
is that let's take a newer live album like Clockwork Angels, okay? There's the old stuff and then there's the new stuff. There's the stuff that's brand new that they're touring for the album, right? The Clockwork Angels material. Go back a little more. Vapor Trails. Even in 2016, what is that, 14 years later, I still look at the Russian Rio and I look at the Vapor Trail stuff as, oh, that's the new music. That was the music that was brand new. And in a way, it still feels new to me. Uh, same with different stages. Same with just about every album. But with this one, I can't, even though I listen and I go, oh, Red Barchetta was brand new. YYZ was brand new. I still look at this album and go, oh, it was like a greatest hits album. You know, they had such, they had so little material by this point. They couldn't not fill this album, this set list up with hits. You know what I mean? If they played this set list, the set list you read to me a second ago, if they played that now, people would lose it. It's like they couldn't, they couldn't pick, they, they couldn't pick bad songs. Oh, I mean, I, 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 I would fly to the U.S. for that gig. Yes. You know, but there was there was no, uh, like, what's a song that uh, kind of like a, not conservative Rush fan, but like an old school Rush fan would not like hearing live, you know? Um, maybe Out of the Cradle <laughs> wouldn't be happy about that. Even older stuff like probably Middletown Dreams people wouldn't be happy about if you like the kind of the radio stuff. But at, at the time of Moving Pictures, what is there that you're going to, piss people off with magical that's it you know yeah. there, there isn't a ton of stuff people are going to be angry about i i think too when you get to the older fans though i mean a lot of the earlier stuff that sort of the younger fans get a bit pissed off about we older ones don't for instance i've always had a really soft spot for i think i'm going bald love that song always have done magical yes. absolutely love that song yes um yeah, it is an interesting one. It's a good point you make because obviously, as as your repertoire develops and as as, as you go on through your career, your the choice of music and the choices you have to make and the omissions you have to make do become more stark. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, and yeah, this is a very in terms of the music that's on the album. And I think, in fairness, in terms of when you look at the longer set list, they couldn't go for it the entire gig. So I think the choices they made in terms of what they put on and left off the album were interesting choices. Um, if I had one huge quibble, it would be leaving off natural science. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for and essentially that's a new. This is its anything on permanent waves. This is its first opportunity to be heard in a live setting on a recording. And yeah. I think natural science totally. probably deserved that spot. What do we? Yeah. I mean, what do we take out though? Um, now, this this is the thing. I mean, in, ter- in, in terms of what's on it, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's also the first chance to highlight Xanadu. It's the first chance to highlight Jacob's Ladder. So are you really talking about, do you swap out Jacob's Ladder for natural science? And, and realistically, I don't think you can. Yes. So from their point of view, they were the choices they were faced with. So I don't blame them for that. And, um, and, they, don't, and they couldn't know this, but this is the last time we'd hear Jacob's Ladder until 2014. Yeah. Or 2015, I mean, right? Uh, yeah. so, I mean, and we, how many times have we heard natural science now? And again, they can't know that back then, but, uh, yeah. looking back, you and I can go, yeah, maybe we'll take Jacob's ladder because you know, it's so rare. Um, funny that I'm looking, I look at this album's list and what's the oldest thing, what's the oldest recording on this album? Beneath Between Behind from Fly By Night. I don't see anything from yeah. the first album. I don't see anything from Caress. I don't nope. see hardly anything from uh, twenty one twelve. I guess Bangkok, but Bangkok pretty much is it from twenty one twelve. Yeah, 
Then we hit farewell to Kings, and really you've got uh, Xanadu itself, and, and closer to the heart. Mm-hmm. So really, it's 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 in in terms of the, the 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 most of the material is permanent waves and moving pictures. Now that I suppose is to be expected, because they're trying to cement. I mean, if you're using an album like this to create a fan base, what you've got to do is cement the last two albums, cement the stuff that's fresh in people's minds. Yeah. Um, I know I did read in in one of the books that um, beneath, between, and behind was a song they were always very fond of and they always loved, which is probably they put that in for sort of almost sentimental reasons. That that was a song that meant an awful lot to Rush. Now it's a song that's almost been forgotten now but lyrically it's a wonderful song structure it's a great song and uh, it's also the shortest song on the album as well yep uh, that was a song i thought we'd hear on r40 simply because it was short i thought they were going to pick the shorter songs from the, the old stuff so they could squeeze more in but i was dead wrong as we all know um let's mm. talk about red barchetta and yyz or yyz yeah again brand new material what's fascinating to me is they don't feel new they they feel you 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 listen and you think, wow, these songs were brand new at that time. And we think of them as old songs. Like I was saying earlier, I don't look at these moving pictures tracks and go, oh, those are the new ones they were touring. Those are the ones people were probably feeling weird about. I still look at them like, oh, those are the hits. Those are the classics. Uh, even yeah. though they're a few months old. But even, Yeah. I mean, I think that's possibly the same even more so for me than it is for you. Because I've been listening to Red Barchetta and listening to YYZ since 1980. So, I mean, they have been, those songs have been part of my life for 40 years, you know. So from that point of view, you know, yeah, they they have been songs that have been important to me for an awful, awful long time. Um, So, yeah, they they don't feel in, in any way old or whatever. But I'll tell you an interesting story about YYZ. Um, I lived for a time with an uncle of mine in London um, directly after college uh, in the mid-1980s and I brought my record collection with me and I was sitting in the sitting room of the house listening to records and um, YYZ was playing and my uncle walked in and he stopped and he turned to me and he said, what's all that YYZ about? I said, what? He said, why why are they going YYZ, YYZ, YYZ? I said, what are you talking about? Now, my uncle was a signalsman in the Irish Army Okay. Uh, before he left and went to the UK to work as a bus conductor. But he had served in the signals division of the Irish Army. So he was conversant in Morse code. Oh, and my that gosh. Was the moment, that was the moment I learned that the rhythmic structure at the start of that piece is, in fact, the Morse code for YYZ. I had no conception of what YYZ <laughs> That's meant. That's incredible. <laughs> I know. He, and it he was knew. actually my my uncle, you know, and yeah, you know, he it was he recognised that he translated it. So he said, "Why, why, Z? What, what's that all about?" And I go, "I, I don't know." <laughs> and that was one of the reasons I went into London and I went looking for a bit more information because at this stage, obviously, this is pre-internet. This is back in the the Neanderthal Dark Ages. Yeah. So there's no internet. There's no way of checking these things out. So I went in and I went into a bookshop and eventually bought um, one of the first books about Rush Visions uh, by the B-man, Bill, what's his face, uh, Bassanovitz or whatever his surname was. I think they've disowned him since. And yeah, it was there then I, I eventually came across the story of how YYZ was the call sign for Pearson Airport in Toronto and and what the song meant to them. But up to then, I had just no conception what this YYZ thing actually meant. Because again, when you're listening to Rush, particularly in Ireland, where they really don't have very much uh, cachet at all, or didn't back then, you're listening in a vacuum. So you have no context, you have no... What you have is the music 
and nothing else. And with lyrics, obviously, you can piece together meanings and you can sort of read your own things into the, the pieces. The instrumentals, you obviously don't. YYZ, there was a whole background and meaning and structure to that piece I had no idea about until I came across this with my uncle in London. Right. You know, I listened to the second track, Red Barchetta, and I go, man, it's already a perfectly representative song for Rush. <laughs> I, I've always said that song, that recording is... Not this recording specifically, but but Red Barchetta was the essence of Rush, man. It had everything they'll ever be. It tells a story so perfectly. It's not too short. It's not too long. It's got everything you'll ever want. And even on this recording, it's a brand new track. I still feel that. It's already... It's already got that classic vibe. And with YYZ, another something similar, they changed the rhythm of like that main riff, the da 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 that riff. There's a slight yeah. rhythm change when they play it live. And the first time I heard this record, I was shocked that that rhythm change was present, which means they recorded that song on Moving Pictures and then went and toured it and already decided, eh, we like it better this way. And they've played it that yeah. way ever since on every live recording i've ever heard of it they have that change that's different than the studio recording so it's interesting to me some of these tracks how they've they've already kind of cemented what they are even today on that tour i actually found myself wondering is the rhythm change in yyz because the drum solo is coming and they're structuring it in such a way as to make the drum solo fit a bit later on well you know what rhythm change i'm talking about right yeah I don't know how. Well, how would that rhythm change affect the solo? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I, to be honest with you, I've never really, I never really thought much about the structure until I've heard you discuss it on on, on the podcast. Um, it, it just, I always wondered. I mean, what was it that, that was different about the piece live than was different in studio? And in studio, it was done very much, uh, you know, following this progression, meaning the journey home. We see the things on the the suitcase tags. Then when it comes into the actual piece on record, I always wondered how the fact that the drum solo was being incorporated into it how that changed the whole thing from the start. And I just found myself wondering if that was part of the reason that they brought in that rhythm change toward the start. I don't know. I I don't know if I would have noticed it if I weren't a young bass player trying to play it when I was yeah. learning Rush. And, and it gets to that part. Is the studio. But live we hear. They hold that one note a little bit longer. And then the next one is shorter. I don't know why that happens, but how do you feel about insert injecting a drum solo inside a song? They they had they've done it on so many tours since. Mm. But when I listen to this recording, I go, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I think I definitely don't like the the three drum solos. The the, the one drum solo split into three, even though you know that's beneficial for him. I kind of liked the Snakes yeah. and Arrows sort of vibe where everything stops, the song ends, and he just goes. You know what I mean? Yeah. I kind of missed that. Well, it was in yeah, it, it was interesting that, you know, when you look at, say, both from the Rio DVD and then the R30 DVD, when they effectively gave the song a title based on what the translation of the words the drummer were in the country they were in. So, um, you know... Uh, uh, El, Del Trommler is German for the drummer. Uh, Oberista is Portuguese for the drummer. Uh, if it was in Ireland, it would be Andromador would be the name of the track because it's the Irish language for the drummer. Uh -huh. So it became a, a separate piece in itself. 
in in terms of incorporating, I always liked it in YYZ. In fact, I always found after listening to the Existential Left version that YYZ just seemed almost missing something without the drum solo. I bet, yeah. To the extent that I tend, I actually tend to listen more to the Existential Left version than I do to the Moving Picture Studio version, because now I almost feel on the studio version there's something missing. (laughs) And and probably every live tour you've heard since where they didn't do that, you thought something was missing as well. Yeah. Uh, It's funny how a band at this point is uh, eight albums in. It seems like so many albums, but we know it's so early in their career. Uh, yeah, uh, songs from this tra- uh, from this record that are old school. I mean, Bangkok's old, but it's not necessarily a hit. And by the way, we hear Bangkok on this record, and I think as I'm re-listening, I'm like, you know, this is a good, this is a really nice song. This it mm. it's it's kind of raw. And we talk about all the world's stages being raw. I think this album is not raw. <laughs> it's very polished and no. sometimes over polished, like we talked about. But Bangkok seems to sort of capture the essence of all the world's a stage to me on this record. It does. And I think that's partly because of the song itself. Um, but I think as well, um, there there is something about Bangkok, the way it's structured, the way Neil comes in with the... Uh, yeah. <laughs> and bringing the lyrics, bringing in the tune. And I mean, and again, that was one of the things that made me fall in love listening to that album, because obviously listening to Exit Stage Left was the first time I heard Bangkok. And it was just lyrically, I mean, you know, I'd read Jack Kerouac. And as I said, I was listening, looking for a band that explored lyrical themes and maybe went more into literature. I'd read Jack Kerouac. I'd read poetry. You know, I'd, I'd read stuff and just stuff like Bangkok was really interesting because it was going to places and evoking images that, that bands had not done before. So you had this wonderful sort of perfect storm in Bangkok of really interesting, well-written lyrics with an underlying theme, um, if you pardon the pun, you know, that sort of pointed to being, you know, you know, with the drug references and that you've got the whole Jack Kerouac on the road sort of, oh, yeah. And then allied with that, you've got these wonderful rhythm and this drumming from uh, Neil Peart that, that's obviously so advanced on what other drummers are doing and then underlying it all you've got this beautiful song with lovely rhythms bringing in the the whole eastern vibe but still being a well-structured and well-recorded rock song and it wasn't instead of doing a rock song we're going to do a piece that brings in eastern themes they're bringing in these eastern themes but beautifully and effortlessly melding them into what is still a really great rock song and and to do that with the skill they did it i just thought yeah that is so so good and yeah it is a lovely version that that is on existential left you know i always forget how proggy bangkok is it's it's got some progressive rock elements in it. Towards the end, there's some weird time signatures happening. There's some multimeters happening, uh, and that's always my favorite. And it, it's a nice little taste of that old school prog. Uh, okay, so we have you look at the tracks on this record, and you ask yourself, what's like the Tom Sawyer of this record? Meaning, if I go see Rush post, you know, the '80s during the concert. There's the big, like, classic song everyone's waiting to hear. In, yeah. in the case of Rush, they've got so many. There's, you, would, you can argue there's yeah. four or five tracks they're all waiting to hear. Uh, how, you know, how do you split the difference between Spirit of Radio and Tom Sawyer, like you were talking about? Um, so I look at this it, and I go, what, I go, what's the Tom Sawyer? And it's very clear, even though uh, Beneath, Between, Behind, 
and uh, and Bangkok are older tracks. I think it's closer to the heart. Closer to the heart, several albums old by now. And I think yeah. when we get to that track, that's the classic that everyone's waiting to hear. Yeah. From the tracks it, that are it, on the album, a, not necessarily the set list, because we have Working Man on the set list. We have all those other great songs, you know, that aren't on the album. Yeah. And the fact that Closer to the Heart is recorded in Glasgow, in Scotland as well. It's Closer to the Heart is one of the tracks that's not actually recorded in Montreal. Now, I know, I have heard it suggested that particularly back then, audiences in Europe and the UK in particular would have been a lot more prone to singing along and being loud and getting into it than audiences in the UK and Canada. I don't know how true that is. I, I can't speak to it because I've never been to a gig in the US. Uh, certainly, I've been to gigs in the UK. I've been to gigs in Ireland. And, and you know, the, the crowd gets into it. I think you do have this, again, it, it comes down to what I said earlier. When you're on this side of the Atlantic, you're not exposed to Rush in the same way people in the US and Canada are. And, you know, when Rush comes, it's an event. I mean, I remember when Rush came to Dublin, it was such a big deal. Yeah. It was huge. And we talked about it for months beforehand. And I had made a pledge even. I would, When Rush ever came to Ireland, I would take my wife and I would bring my, my kids and I mean as it happens my kids by the time it happened were in their late teens and they appreciated it and we went as a family and it was almost like a pilgrimage because my first ever use of the internet funnily enough um, an internet cafe opened up um, in, in, in Waterford where I'm from and I would have been probably early 20s at the time and, and this was a very very new technology my first use of the internet was in this internet cafe brand new thing it was the big thing in town so expensive compared to now as well mm. The first email I sent, my very first email, was sent to Russia's management at Anthem in Toronto, asking them to play a gig in Ireland. Okay. I'll always hold that as being something. That was the very first email I ever sent was an email to Anthem in Toronto, <laughs> asking them to play Please, Ireland. Yeah, more, more, or begging, right? Like pleading, please. Oh, totally. <laughs> totally. And, and I, that comes back to, again, that the rarity and the, the you know, the, the difficulty of getting in touch. And it, sometimes it's hard. And I find myself talking to my kids and I, I find myself turning into my own father at times. It's like, oh, back in our day, it was different. And, oh, and it's, oh shut up, granddad. But right. it, it really was. I mean, the difference now with the Internet and all the resources we have to hand in terms of, oh, there, there's a song by Rush. What's it called? Hang on a tick. It's going to take me 20 seconds to go into YouTube and grab up a copy and listen to it then go to spotify then go online check the lyrics and i'll be an expert on the song by 20 minutes yeah i mean back in those that did not happen so i know from the point of view of an audience in glasgow people at that gig especially when you get something like closer to the heart you can sing along with i mean totally that is going to it's always interesting on the liner notes there's a little reference to the glaswegian chorus and yeah they are so into it they are really really into it yeah but again, I think when you're talking about what are the, the points in terms of the high points, what are the Tom Sawyers, what are the spirits of radio, I think this is again where this production comes into play. Because I remember thinking when I was listening, I was re-listening to Exit Stage Left recently, and I was listening to the remaster on Spotify. Now, I have one of the original press CDs from, from years ago. So when I actually put on the, the most recent remaster on, on Spotify, listening to fairly good headphones on a fairly good machine, um, it, it was fascinating because you're listening to when it bells from the trees into Xanadu. Now, I know if I was at a gig and the trees finished and you just heard that wah, 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 yeah. Now, the first <laughs> I heard that, 
I would go apeshit. I know that. And I've no doubt that when the audience in Montreal heard that, they went apeshit too, but it just doesn't come across on the album. And I think it's a difficult question to answer as to what were the high points of the gigs, because I think the production really doesn't allow us to hear. So what you're you're kind of saying, uh, like you were saying earlier, these newer records do a much better job of this. You think... You think something like that would not be missed from a, a modern live album? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, when, when you listen to, and as he said, and I think Rio, in a sense, almost is, is the prototype because Rio presented us with a gig. And we know from watching the Voice in Brazil documentary, I mean, you know, all the difficulties they had on that tour and yeah. the rain and the production issues and getting to the gig and not being able to, and maybe just maybe given that rush can be such perfectionists and i think sometimes perfectionists to a fault because i think sometimes they're actually losing out by being perfectionists to the extent that they are but because they're such perfectionists maybe the fact that they had to wing it for rio and maybe the fact that rio is imperfect that's what makes rio just that little bit special yes i agree what what is it about xanadu for you is it also the studio recording is it yes. the song? Any, anytime you hear that song in any capacity. Oh, to this day, to this day, it, it's it, it it would certainly be just uh, in terms of of it's just such a brilliant song. I just love that song. Always have done. I think part of it would possibly be that I mean, in in school, I had studied the poem Kublai Khan by um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, so I was aware of the poem. I was aware of the concept of Xanadu. Now, there had been before that uh, ELO, Electric Light Orchestra, and Olivia Newton-John had come out with a sort of a single in about 1979, 1980, called Xanadu, which was fairly forgettable and uh, a little bit crappy, to tell the truth. So, you know, when I saw Rush had a song called Xanadu, um, I was wondering, well, you know, what, what's this? What's this going to be like? But I mean, you know, the the poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge starts. You know, it, it's called Kublai Khan, and the, the opening line is in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. You know, and and I, I I studied that in school. So to actually listen to Xanadu, hear the music build and build and build so beautifully, hear the instrumentation, and then have Getty kick in to seek the sacred river elf to walk the caves of ice to break my fast on honeydew and drink the milk of paradise. I thought, Jesus, someone has taken a poem I slogged through in school and turned this into a wonderful piece of art, yeah. a wonderful piece of. This is genius, and it's always held something sort of special to me that particular song and yeah it, that was the moment when i listened to the xanadu by the time it was over the lyrics the music the whole thing brought together the atmosphere it evoked it was at that point and i i referenced this at the start it was at that point i knew that rush had gone to be gone from being just a brilliant band to being my band and to this day rush have are and will remain my band you know i'll I'll never complain about hearing the trees live. I'll always rather hear a deep cut over something even that that unpopular like the trees or, or that, you know, the trees is not exactly a radio hit uh, in some senses, um, but I'll never complain about hearing it live. So speaking of genius, Brune's Bane is a track that I, I know is good. I don't listen to this album a ton, but I, I listened to it this week and I went, you know, I did I did not remember. I forgot how amazing this is. That dude yeah. is like we all know he's got chops, we all know he's a creative guitarist, 
but he plays in the classical style. And as somebody who's hung around classical musicians for several years, uh, classical guitarists, classical guitar is very different than every other type of guitar playing. And he nails it. It's a really incredible. It's a great track, and I wish he had repeated it. it. it it's kind of, um, it's kind of stuck with this record in time. Well, I always thought that the, the closest he's come to it since, perhaps, is Hope on Snakes. Absolutely, perhaps not. Absolutely, it's a, different, it's a different vibe, but it's the closest I think we've seen to Brune Spain since then. And and of course, Hope, was, also, Hope was performed live, and on the, the the tours after, he did things kind of like Hope. He has that intro to Closer to the Heart, yeah. you know. Um, but 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 I, I sort of think this deserved to be played somewhere else. I would agree, and I've always been wondered about the name too. Obviously, Bruin being Terry Brown's nickname. I mean, you know, w- w- is this something that they had left off at another album, or so? Is it something they had lying around? <laughs> and where, where did this come from? Right. Because the one thing Rush do not do live and never have done is really is improvise. So right. this must have come from somewhere, you know. We, I think we we could take it. Some bands will go on stage and they'll improvise something and they'll dig about and they'll come up with something. I mean, Rush never have I think done that. And, you know, it, it's clear it came from somewhere. And it's, it's a lovely little piece that it does introduce and, you know, you can feel the build-up. Now, as I said, it was my first time hearing the trees. So I, I just thought that came with the trees. So it was only afterwards I realized, having picked up all the, all the rest of the albums over the next couple of months, it was only later I realized that this Brune's Bane thing appeared no place else. Of course, I hadn't a clue who Brune was or what Brune was. Yeah. Brune was, as far as I was concerned, a sort of a... It's a, a Scottish um, d- derivative of the word brown, and that's all I was. Oh, spoon, <laughs> and that's all I knew it of. Uh, you know, and there, there's obviously some Scottish Scots somewhere in in Rush because Getty seems to have an obsession with Scotland. Yes, he and does. Brune obviously <laughs> Terry's nickname as well, going right back to uh, you know Getty's portrayals in the videos uh, in the, the later tours. But where where Brune's vein came from, I had no idea at the time. But it was just such a lovely piece of music. And it was only afterwards then, of course, I'd seen reference to the Omega Concern on, on albums. Now, what the hell is the Omega Concern? And then realized that the Omega Concern was this little music stand Alex had actually devised himself so he could play the classical guitar, then step away and hit the electric without missing a beat. Right. Man. It, it, that's, I think that's one of the, you could argue, a high point on this record. Simply, looking back, in hindsight, you could look at that and go, that is such an amazing moment that we'd never really hear again, and that makes it special. Um, you know, oh, totally, totally. Tom Sawyer on this record, again, like all the other Moving Pictures tracks, I'm making the same point. We get to hear it live for the first time, and it's amazing. Not amazing. I might overuse that word sometimes, but it's cool how they've already got the ending they'll use for the rest of their career on this song. They've got, you know, Red Barchetta is a song that doesn't really have a live ending. They just kind of collectively stop playing. And I think it might it might be appropriate for Red Barchetta. There are other songs they do that on that I, I think it doesn't work as well yeah. as a real ending. Uh, but Tom Sawyer gets this... It gets slower and slower. And that's the ending they'll use for the rest of their career. And that's a cool thing. They never thought they needed a different ending. They ne- and it happened. You got to imagine on any song that fades out, there is an ending, right? I, maybe very rarely there's a song that 
They don't have an ending for it, and they just say, let's fade it out. But when they're recording, you got to imagine there is an ending they made up, just in case. Uh, we even have fade-outs that we can hear the ending. We've talked about that a yeah. bunch, and what a travesty that is. Um, but yeah. I, something tells me they ended it like that in the studio, but decided to fade it for whatever reason, because um, it, it's a great ending. Yeah, I mean, all, all I can think is obviously when you're working with vinyl, you're working with cassettes, you've got a certain time limitation. Um, I do actually think it is a shame that it fades because it's a song that, that demands a big ending. It's a song that demands a big crescendo. It's like and, a limelight yeah, Tom kind Sawyer, of ending. Yeah, Tom Sawyer is one of those songs actually I prefer listening to live than listening to the studio version. There's quite a few songs like that, and Tom Sawyer definitely is one of those. And you've, you've hit on one of the key reasons, and it is that it just builds up to that ending, and it 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 does make sense. The studio just peters out. Um, it, it's not quite as bad as there, there is one rush moment on on it's on permanent waves, which I think is the biggest musical travesty of Rush's career. And I once had the opportunity. I met Terry Brown at a, a seminar, and I actually asked him about it when I got the opportunity. Wait, so and this is a this is a moment on permanent waves? You said. Yeah, a moment. It's a fade out on permanent waves, which, to my mind, is the worst fade out in Rush history. Um, I'm I, I'm trying to think of Jacob's Ladder ends, and Free Will is not a fade out. Spirit of Radio is definitely oh. not a fade out. No. Entree New is uh, not a fade out. I'm gonna oh. I'm gonna say oh, different strings is. Is it different strings? Yes. <laughs> okay. Diff- absolutely different strings. <laughs> you can just hear Alex. It's as though he's about to kick into this brilliant solo, and you know he's just getting into a stride. And then, yeah. <laughs> That's and I'm totally going, why? <laughs> I mean, there is, you just get the sense that. Now, I remember you did the first album. And I have to say, the song you like least on the first album is one of the ones I like most, partly because of the guitar solo. Here again. The guitar solo in here again, to my mind, is a lovely solo. Mm -hmm. And I could see that being replicated at the end of different strings. And it just peters out into nothing. When you're just thinking, he's just getting into a stride. You can just feel there is something developing that Alex is playing. And and it's just as though it goes, ah, now we won't bother. I mean, do you think that's like a vinyl limitation? Like because of how big natural science is? I I, I really don't know. Well, what did Terry Um, say? It's always... Um, he sort of um, he shook it off. He kind he? of uh, he, he he shrugged it off and said, "Yeah, actually, yeah, we we probably could have let it go a bit longer. Actually, you're you know you have a point." And he didn't really go too much into it, you know. And it, it wasn't a sort of a it it wasn't in any way an acrimonious thing. It was sort of a it was at one of the the rush conferences, the 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 EU rush conferences, you know, the the Yukon, and it was just before the Manchester gig as well. So it was uh, during the uh, the Snakes tour. Um, and they had timed the the EUCon to time with the the gig in Manchester, so I'd flown over for that. Um, I was it was it was a lovely setting, and to me, Terry was. I mean, it wasn't really a challenge, but we didn't go into too much detail. But it, it was an interesting point, and I think yeah, yeah, you have a point with Tom Sawyer. It does tend to to fade into sort of nothing, and I think particularly when you have such a good song in terms of the structure, in terms of the rhythm, in terms of the lyrics, in terms of what it builds into, sometimes fade outs just appear to go well, whatever. I just I cannot see Nick fading anything out yeah isn't it really funny could not fade anything <laughs> and, and he, does he, he have any i mean every the, time the records was a very deliberate fade out you know like we'll give him a pass there but what is there anything else that really fades out in the way 
you know, Tom yeah, Sawyer yes, fades record, out. It does make sense in the record. Yeah, <laughs> it does in the records. It makes sense in relation to the narrative, in relation to the song, yep. and the overall concept of clockwork. Yeah, it does make sense. But just fade out for the sake of fade out. No. Yes, I agree. Now, uh, here's my favorite thing about free an old Free Will recording like this is anytime I get Young Getty's voice, that nice crisp. Yeah screechy dead mouse whatever we you know the the critics call it voice at the middle of the free will i love it i think that's that's what makes free will that's the cherry on top and i know that cherry isn't exactly attainable anymore but it's uh you're talking about each of us a self-awareness yes yes and and to hear it up there is just a treat yeah because you know, the, I wouldn't. I don't think the rest of it any ever lost any energy live. I'll take any recording of this song, even the newer stuff, and be like, "Yeah, that that's it." And in fact, I you guys yeah. know, I would argue uh, everything about their their individual sounds, the tone of their instruments, the energy, I think has improved with every live album. I think it's the best it's ever been. So I, I of course, yep. I'll I'd love to hear them play it in 2015 or whatever. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, get Getty's voice, and I think it's it's noticeable. I even I, I was um, watching some DVDs recently, and I watched R40, and then I watched Snakes, and even I thought between R40 and Snakes, the difference in his voice was was, was noticeable. Yeah, it is. And I think there there is no doubt Getty was struggling at points in R40. There is no doubt he was struggling. I thought um, uh, this is a little off topic, but I thought Clockwork Angels was sort of the peak. Uh, I thought he sang really well on Clockwork. I know people disagree. Uh, there uh, was, or maybe Time Machine is what I'm thinking of. Those two, rec- those two tours kind of blend together in my head. But uh, yeah. I remember on no, Time Machine, I, mean, I-, I thought this he's singing so well. In fact, I think Free Will on Time Machine during that line was the closest I've ever heard it since you know the older yeah. Decades ago. Well, yeah, Time Machine, the gig in Dublin, is the last time I saw them live. So that was, you know, I, I was I was there for for Time Machine, and he sounded incredible at that gig. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. I, I agree with you there full heartedly. I mean, I think it's interesting when you look into stuff like Clockwork when you move into the albums. Obviously, now when they write the music, it's it's fine on the new music because he's obviously he's tailoring his voice to the songs and they're tailoring the songs to his voice so it makes sense and it fits it's really when you pull out the stuff like free will pull out the old stuff that obviously would have been sung now i know they've taken a couple of songs down a couple of keys and down a couple of registers um in terms of the way he performs them but yeah certainly the getty was absolutely in terms of his voice for free will and for the self-awareness line yeah it was really exactly really good. and you're, so you're right let's, let's give those guys some credit they have not detuned that song i think if there were a song that was next on the chopping block for the detune treatment. It would probably be that one. Yeah. Uh, but it's a fast song. It's you know we detune like circumstances or twenty one twelve. They're big, heavy, like riffy. Uh, they're he- heavy, not like heavy metal, but they 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 have a lot of weight to them. And uh, yeah. or another song, like Cygnus, we detuned. Uh, we don't do that with Free Will. Free Will. It's a fast riff, you know. It's 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 it moves. We don't need it to be heavier. We need it to be lighter. So good for them for recognizing that, or maybe we're overanalyzing. That's what we do here at Rushcast. We overthink. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, let's talk about the juggernaut on this. Yeah. Well, you could say the juggernaut of their career, right? La Via. And La Via. You know, let me ask you. 
at this time, were, were people pumped to hear La Villa? I can't think of, I can't imagine there was ever a time where we'd be like, oh, that one? All right. This doesn't seem like a track where it got popular as it got older. You know what I mean? I, I suspect they were. It's, I actually, I must say, I do think this is probably my favorite recording of La Villa. Okay. Particularly since listening to the remaster, because the clarity on the remaster is stunning. Particularly when he brings in the little Yiddish rhyme toward the end. Um, you know, the patty cake, patty cake is a, a Yiddish nursery rhyme. It, it, I, I think the Levia recording on this is stunning. It, it's a wonderful, wonderful recording. And we've all seen several Levias. Um, I would be in a minority in that, whereas I did enjoy uh, the one bit of improvisation that Alex did. I was never a great fan of the rants during the R30 tour because I think it maybe slightly took away from the piece. Right. Um, and I know I'm in the minority when I say that very much. But um, this, this, this is my favorite La Via recording. It's a stunning piece of music, brilliantly written, wonderfully structured. And I think this is one of the few times where Alex Lifeson sort of stood out because I've always admired Alex. He's always been a, a member of the band first and foremost. We know Alex is one of the greatest guitarists out there. We know Alice can shred and he can solo and Alice, Alex could be a guitar god. He could give Eddie Van Halen or anyone else a run for their money. We know that. Alex has always stood slightly back. He's always stayed part of the band. He's been part of a unit and he's contributed musically to that. This is one of those few moments where Alex has stepped out and gone, you know what, guys? I am going to show you what I can do and what he shows us is brilliance. Yeah, I think if we had to label it, I would call him the most disciplined guitarist in all of rock. I think that's probably a really good way of putting it. You know? That he holds back. You always get the sense Alex is holding back. You get the sense he can do so much more and he could get out there and he could impress you, but he doesn't impress you because he believes, and I think he does believe, that being in the band and being part of the unit and being part of that whole is more important than everybody going, oh, Alex, Alex, we love you. Right. And, and, and there are certainly times on this track when he when he does get to show off a bit. But I, I love okay, what you're I, saying. I, I, it's like yeah. he teaches us the a lesson every musician learns at some point, which is less is more. My dad used to say that to me yeah. all the time playing bass lines. He, I, 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 he'd come see me play and he'd go, you know, you sound great, but less is more. Always remember, less is more, right? And uh, that's what Alex yeah. shows us. And I've all you guys know, I'll I'll argue for this album every day of my life. Power Windows is the best ex- example of that. There are times when he screams, and there are times when he just puts these sprinkles on top of the song, and that's all you need. And it says so much. Love that album. Totally. Uh, you know, you- and in fairness, I- go ahead. Yeah, I, mean, I think in fairness too, when it comes to, to, to Power Windows and, and the synth-heavy albums, I mean, it's really only afterwards Alex was, you know, he was open about how slightly, I won't use the word resentful, that's probably putting words in his mouth, but he was a little bit put out by the fact that there was so little guitar on some of those albums. But still, again, as you say, the discipline, and there is no doubt even this, the most synth-heavy pieces on them, you take away Alex's guitar, you take away Fair something enough. absolutely central to those oh, albums. yeah, you're taking the character you, you away can. from them. You're, oh yeah, totally. He, he went from the guitar goes and again. We're way off topic, but it's cool. <laughs> I love this. He, you know, the guitar is always the main thing in a rock band. Everything else supports that part, and he becomes the character of the piece. Whereas the synths are the main part, the bass is the main part, and he becomes the decoration. And it completely flipped around the role of the guitar. Say what you want, and of course he wanted to go back to the more classical, not classical, the more uh, traditional setting of a guitar player. 
the more traditional role. Sure, whatever. But you know what? He didn't step on the music while he wasn't the center. You know what I mean? He didn't. Yeah. He didn't do what any other guitarist would do and, and just try to overstep his boundaries and do his normal thing. He adapted, and whether he liked doing that or not, he did it, and I'm happy for that. Yeah, and Levio too, we do know that, I mean, you know, a lot of this is actually based on nightmares and dreams he was having. He's been upfront about that. So we do know Alex was very much the, the lead instigator and the lead writer of this particular piece. And in terms of the atmosphere, in terms of where it goes, in terms of the way it builds, it's just such a wonderful piece of music. And this is almost Alex and, and uh, you know, Getty and Neil as well saying, OK, you've listened to us do songs, you've listened to us be a group, but you know what? We are three of the best musicians you're ever going to encounter. Uh, we don't show off it's not in our nature to show off but here's a glimpse of what we can do and they just step out there and they just perform this amazing piece of music and that's what it is it is an amazing piece of music it 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 transcends rock it transcends a lot and i i think yeah it's great and this this is as i say my favorite recording of it absolutely wonderful you know i was actually i was gonna i thought of this and thought eh, i won't talk about that but you brought it up my favorite recording is the Rio recording, and I think the rant is hilarious, but I sort of feel mm. the same. I was going to say, my favorite recording is the Rio recording minus the rant, because it, it, it is sort of a separate thing. Now, I, I agree, this is the place to put it. You know, it mm. is an appropriately titled song for something like that. But musically, like, it is hilarious, but I'm, I'm sort of not interested. I want to hear it as a as a piece of art by itself. You know yeah. what I mean? Now, I, I, am, I am now going to contradict myself to a certain extent. The rant makes sense in the context of the gig. And I think it's important to say that because I was, I was at the uh, R30 gig in Birmingham. And at the time, there was a big uh, debate going on in the UK because there was a brewery called Boddington's, which was closing down. And Boddington's was a sort of an iconic beer brand in, in the UK, in England in particular. And Alex did this whole rant about how he wouldn't be able to buy Boddington's and drink Boddington's anymore. And he did this lament to Boddington's beer. It, at the gig, it was hilarious. It was, it was really, really good. And, and this is where, you know, I do contradict myself in the sense that, yeah, at the gig, it's really funny. Now, afterwards, when you're listening to a live recording, sometimes to things like that, it's, it's out of context because it's not in the hall. Yeah. So from that point of view, it, it sort of slightly loses something. But in terms of listening to La Via as a musical piece, um, minus the rant, it's better to listen to afterwards. The rant is great to experience, particularly when you're actually at the gig. Um, and as I say, the rant I was there for in Birmingham was a really, really funny part of the gig. And I did say earlier that Rush don't improvise, and that perhaps is uh, a slight downside to them as a live act. And it would be wrong of me then to say, oh, they improvise and it's awful, because I don't <laughs> believe that. But in terms of listening, in terms of listening afterwards... Um, you know, La Via as a piece to listen to. And again, I would listen more to live versions than I would necessarily to the Hemispheres version. And I think the Exit Stage Left version would be my favorite version to listen to. Now, I, I did the real version is great as well. Um, I really enjoyed the version on uh, Time Machine as well. Yes. I mean, I do enjoy all the versions, obviously, because each version <laughs> has got song, so right? different. <laughs> but yeah, this, 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 is, this, this is the best one in my view. Uh, Donald, we're doing, no, you did. best is actually the wrong word. It's my personal favorite. Right, exactly. I, I've actually been trying to make the same distinction. You know, I always talk about my my three favorite albums, and I think I sometimes mistakenly say they're the best three albums, and that's definitely not true. Even I would admit that Snakes and Arrows, Power Windows, 
And uh, what's my other one? Um, what's my other favorite? Uh, power Windows, it Snakes. Be, it, it used to be, but it's becoming Vapor Trails, isn't it? It is becoming Vapor Trails. I can't remember the other one. I, oh, Counterparts. I haven't listened to Counterparts yeah. in forever. I'm like, I'm fasting. <laughs> I really am. I, I had been listening to that album for so long. I'm like, I, I don't want to kill this thing. You know what I mean? So I yeah. haven't listened to it in forever. But uh, you're right. I think Vapor Trails is kind of taking the place of Snakes and Arrows. Regardless, though, I would never consider those two Vapor Trails. I would never consider Counterparts, Vapor Trails, or Snakes to be their best albums. Their three best. I think their three best would ha- yeah. you know, be more something like um, Moving Pictures, Power Windows, and Hemispheres or something like that. Um, but that's a whole different discussion. I d- but you're right. There is a distinction. Um, is there... Is there another point you wanted to make about this record that we didn't get to, Donald? The one thing I would say is one of my biggest regrets, we were talking about what's left on and what's left off. Um, one of the, I remember I was in a record shop uh, a couple of years after this came out and I came across a copy of um, New World Man, a 12-inch single of New World Man. So I bought it and realized that there was a version of Vital Signs at the back. Hmm. And then I realized that Vital Signs had been left off, exit stage left. And that really annoyed me because Vital Signs was always one of my favorites on moving pictures and it's always been a song that's been special to me it's always been a song i loved but the one thing i couldn't believe now and maybe this is looking back you know with the knowledge of what happened afterwards the fact that limelight was left off the record stuns me yeah absolutely i mean that was of all the omissions that was literally as i said right (laughs) yeah of, of all the omissions from the live album the, the omission of limelight, I, I have always found the most stunning one. And okay, we spoke about natural science earlier. Yeah, I, I think it's a shame natural science was omitted. I absolutely understand why. It's going to be really difficult to shoehorn something like natural science into an album, particularly as, and I believe they were, trying to create a graded sets album. So from that point of view, yeah, the absence of natural science is understandable. The absence of Bytor well, completely understandable. The absence of Overture, Temples of Syrinx, the stuff that was on All the World's a Stage. Yeah, the absence of all that is, is, is understandable. The absence of limelight has always somewhat surprised me. And most of Because I would have even... And the, and the entire second side, right? Now, yeah. wasn't Camera Eye played during the menu of the DVD or something like the, the intro? It is. It's, it's, played during, it's played during the intro, yeah. And I always but thought... But I actually... I, 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 I think it's what's played is actually the studio version from Moving Pictures. I don't think it's the live version that's played. Huh. I just thought that, I always I, thought that I was weird. That, yeah. You know, that it was played, but it wasn't. Or that they would even show its face and it wasn't going to be represented on the album. But but Limelight, I mean, yeah. that's a we're talking about two different things. Camera Eye is not yeah. the same as leaving Limelight off of its actual tour. No. <laughs> You know, yeah, I, I mean, I just thought to leave Limelight off was 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 was. But now, and as I say, maybe that's looking back now. We have now we've seen Limelight open so many shows, yeah, close so yeah. many shows. We we've seen Limelight has just been one of the staples of Live Rush and one of the, you know, you get sort of people to name five Rush songs. I mean, Limelight will almost inevitably be one of them. So the fact that they actually left Limelight off, maybe at that point they didn't know what that song was going to become. That's so. Sometimes you can look back on those days with sort of. You know, you look back with the perspective of what we know now. Sure. And and maybe that's being slightly unfair to them. But I mean, I just think Limelight is such a huge omission from this album. It is, absolutely. Um, and, and I think I've done the research. I can't remember right now what the results were. I don't think Limelight's been left off a tour since. Or no, maybe one. I think I don't think Presto had Limelight. I think that was a trivia question. 
Um, but there's been like one or two tours since that haven't had it. It's it's funny. Um, and the other thing is, we always think of it as a song that they open with a bunch. They've opened one tour with that song. I couldn't believe it when I looked it up. Snakes and Arrows yeah. was, I believe, the only tour they where the set list started with Limelight. Of course, we've seen it. We've seen it end with Limelight. We've seen it other places. Yeah, but they've probably finished with. with they've probably closed with Limelight far more often. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they closed R30 with Limelight, didn't they? If I recall, uh, I think R30 closed with it. Didn't one it? of those, it? yeah. If not, then the I, th- I think it was. I think it was R30 closed with because, Limelight. Yeah, because Snakes. The next one was uh, Limelight. They started with Limelight. I mean, on Snakes. I yeah. think you're right. Uh, La Via, interestingly enough, this is relevant. Is the song they've closed with by like far and away one of the the most frequently use songs as a closer um, yeah. like it is on this record it's, it's a cool but I think place they would, it's a cool place to hear that song at the end of the concert oh it is but it's almost like you know where do you go after that then maybe that's part of it you, you you either finish you either finish a set with it or you know there's if, if you're going to do la via you're going to have to have something special i mean you know i'm just trying to remember in r30 what came directly up i think it went la via did it go la via 2112 Tom Sawyer. I don't know. I mean, I could look at I'm up. just thinking about 30. I, I think the 2112 excerpt may have directly followed La Via, but I mean, you're going to have to fo- follow La Via with something like that. Yeah. I can't remember. Now. I, should have, I think it's 2112 came directly after La Let, Via. I mean, in, let's, in let's be grateful we heard La Via so many, on so many tours. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know? Um, Donald, thank you so much, man. It's been a pleasure, Jake. You, I'm, I'm a little annoyed, like I said, that your voice sounds so much better than mine. But hey, and you know what? We finally dialed in a really good phone connection. You, you sound, you don't know it yet, but you sound crystal clear on my end. So it's gonna be a nice sounding episode. An episode that took three years to get recorded, man. We had to push this thing back so much. We had so many problems this week. Uh, but thank you to the listener for, for hanging in there and not destroying me via Twitter. And email, and thank you especially to Donald for, for hanging around and being so uh, understanding. Cool. It's been worth it, Jay. An absolute pleasure. All right, man. Thank you so much. And listen, uh, the rest of you have a job to do. You need to email me and uh, tell me you want to be on the mailing list. Of course, you can always email us, rushcast2112 at gmail.com, just to send your reaction to the show or any input you have on the show. Any compliments you want to send, Donald, I will forward to him. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you guys all so much. We'll see you very soon for Grace Under Pressure Live. Oh my God, this is a giant dog.